Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 1. Let's stand yet again as we get into God's Word. I know uh, this is a little up and down, but it's good for us. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the Holy Spirit says today through Moses, Now the serpent was more crafty uh, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You may be seated. What are some of the earliest memories in your childhood? Uh, we all have some. Uh, just so you know, this studies have been done, that research has been done that says that you really don't start forming memories of your childhood until the ages of two to two and a half. And so any of you parents in the room who are kind of worried <laughs> about what took place year one and year two, scientist says you're okay. <laughs> I remember, you know, some of my earliest memories, I remember taking my uncle to an airport once uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I didn't like Knoxville then, and I don't like Knoxville now. Um, especially because those volunteers. Uh, anyway, uh, I remember uh, one time my sister uh, put me in a washing machine and turned it on, uh, and I was saved by my parents, uh, so she was going to clean me, uh, I guess. Uh, another memory I have is when I was a, a younger kid, I, I went to a restaurant with my dad, and he was with a friend, and uh, to kind of keep me quiet, he ordered me a big old plate of french fries, and so I wanted some ketchup. I love ketchup. Anybody else love ketchup in the room? I love ketchup. Amen. God is good, and so is ketchup. But anyway, <laughs> and so I wanted some ketchup. My dad said, hey, wait, I'll, I'll, I'll get it for you, and I didn't wait, and so I took the big bottle. It's those glass bottles. You remember those old glass bottles of ketchup? It's Heinz ketchup. And so I opened the top, and I saw him do it before, and you hit the bottom, and so I did that. And the ketchup went all over, like the whole bottle just poured out on the fries. And so my dad said, well, listen, son, you're going you're gonna to learn a lesson today, and you're going to eat those fries. And so I ate those fries, and uh, here's what I learned throughout all my childhood. My mom and dad, they constantly taught me this, actions have consequences. 
Matter of fact, my granny used to say, she said, child, if you make your bed hard, you have to lay in it. Anybody ever heard that one? Actions have consequences. For every action, there is a reaction. If you break it, you, you bought it. It's written within the fabric of the universe that actions have consequences. And we see that here in Genesis chapter 3, that one act of disobedience by Adam and Eve had eternal consequences. See, after God created Eve, he declared it very good. After the woman was created, that's when creation was very good, men. The husband and the wife were both naked. They were not ashamed. There was no shame, no distrust, no dishonor. complete innocence, total paradise. They were living in perfect peace with God, perfect peace with each other. They had no problems. They were able to uh, follow and pursue God's design for their life. All was well, and yet one act, Adam and Eve broke paradise. And because of that, we suffer the consequences as being descendants of Adam Romans 5, 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death has spread upon all because all have sinned. And so we see that here in Genesis 3. And so in Genesis 3, we see how the world was broken by sin, but also in Genesis 3, we see how God promised to fix it in Jesus Christ. So let's walk through that, through looking at three areas. Number one, I want us to look at the fall of humanity. At the end of chapter 2, we have this caricature of a world that was perfect, husband and wife we're naked and not ashamed. And then chapter three, it seems that the curtain is lifted and we're now whisked into a day in the life of Adam and Eve. And the Bible says that it was on that particular day that the serpent showed up. One day, a literal snake that represented the personal presence of Satan, the evil one showed up. And what we see is this, is that evil existed before the fall of humanity. Uh, evil did not begin with man. Evil did not begin with God. God cannot be tempted by evil. Neither does he tempt anyone. Uh, evil is not equal with God. Uh, Satan is not equal with God. Satan is a created being uh, who rebelled uh, from God and turned evil. And what you notice here is that the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings, but Moses here is not interested in telling us in this passage the origin of evil itself. What he's interested in telling us is the origin of human sin and guilt. And so he says that one day there was a serpent, a snake that showed up in the garden. And here's something about that snake. That snake was more crafty. Now, it's not that the snake was good with glue sticks. Uh, he was crafty. And it says that he was subtle. He was shrewd. He's an angel of light. He's clever and smart. He didn't come talking devilish. He didn't have some weird laugh. He was attractive. He was appealing. He doesn't come across as a boogeyman. And so he says to the woman, he doesn't come to the man, he comes to the woman, subverting the order of creation of man and then woman. Doesn't mean that women are less than man, but God created a man first and then the woman. And so it should be that he went to the man first, but instead he goes to the woman first. And so he comes with this question, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That word you is actually in the plural. So if the devil were a southern devil, it would be y'all. If he was a Midwestern devil, it'd be used guys. When Eve responds, she uses the word we, not the royal we, but the we, speaking of her and Adam. And after she talks to the snake, we find out in verse number six that she actually gives the fruit to Adam, who was next to her. In other words, the entire time this is going on, Adam is there, he is seeing, but yet he is passive. He's allowing his wife to talk to a snake. Men, never allow your wife to talk to a snake. As a matter of fact, if you ever see your wife talking to a snake or ever see a snake talking to your wife, you kill the snake. There's no kind of snake like a dead snake. 
Adam was supposed to be the spiritual leader and shepherd of his family. Adam was the one that first received the commandment of God in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. It was Adam's responsibility to teach the commandments of God to his wife. Ephesians 5 tells men that our, our responsibility as a husband is to wash our wives in the water of the word. And so as we listen to the conversation between Eve and Satan, we see that she struggles. Satan comes to her. Remember, he's crafty. He says, did God actually say? Satan here does not deny God's word. He's sophisticated. He's slick. He's basically asking this question, are you sure? It's a diabolical question that's, caused, that's meant to cause doubt and confusion. What seems to be an innocent theological debate led, led, led Eve into questioning the very word of God. And Satan, to this day, continues to whisper thousands of questions to get us to doubt God's word and to silence the voice of God over our lives. Words like, how can you trust that old book? Are, are you sure uh, that the things that God said then are actually meant for us today? Isn't that book outdated? Or how can you be sure that the words were not changed? How can you know that it's sure? And that's the question that Satan wants to get. If he can cause doubt into your mind about what God says, then it opens the door for so many kinds of evils. And so in verse number two, Eve responds Matter of fact, in the dialogue between Satan and Eve, three times God's word will be referenced, and in all three times it's misquoted or distorted. As she recaptures what God commanded that she heard first from her husband Adam, she leaves out two words. She leaves out the word every, and she leaves out the word surely. When she addresses the tree, uh, she doesn't call the tree by name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She calls it by location, the one in the middle of the garden. Then she actually adds to the command of God, saying that you shall not touch it, seemingly making God an overly strict God. If she were in Arwanas, she would not have passed that verse. She says, though, that if you touch it or if you eat it, you'll die. Satan in verse 4 says, you will not surely die. Now he flat out denies God's word. What Satan says is that you will not die. As a matter of fact, the opposite will happen, Eve. If you do this, you won't die. You'll actually live. See, God knows that in the moment that your eyes are open, uh, when you eat this fruit, that things are going to change. And so really what you have to get at is this, is that God is holding back from you. Uh, God doesn't have your best interest in his heart. He really doesn't want you uh, to, to do this because he's afraid that if you do this, you'll be equal to him. See, God doesn't love you. He can't be trusted. As a matter of fact, Eve, you have to understand that nobody knows you like you know you. And only you can decide what's best for you. See, up until this moment in history, God had been the one that told both the man and the woman what was good. As you look in Genesis 1, the creation narrative is how God saw it and he declared it good. Now Satan here is offering for Adam and Eve to take it upon themselves to decide what's good and what's best in their life without worry of judgment or punishment. Satan says, just follow your heart and you'll be happy. Yet in every one of these instances, everything that Satan says is a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth, which is a total lie. If you get nothing from this message, please get this, is that Satan always presents the bait and hides the hook. Everything that Satan promises Eve and Adam are a twisted version of what they already had. They already were like God. They were made in his image. What Satan wants to do here is to minimize the consequences. Satan wanted Eve to see that what 
she was missing was something that she couldn't live without. What she was missing was something more important to her than obeying God. And so he is doing everything he can to get her to believe that God's word is not true and that God is not good. See, every time you and I sin against God, every time we disobey, we are believing the same things. Every time you and I sin, we believe that God's word isn't true and that God isn't good. And so in verse six, the Bible says that when the woman saw, she cast her eyes off of God and onto the sin Instead of listening to the creator, she listened to the creature. She followed her impressions, the impressions of her heart rather than the instructions of her God. And so in that moment, she makes a decision. She took the fruit and she ate it. Now, more than likely, it wasn't an apple. It could have been a fig tree. We know that she clothed, they clothed themselves with fig leaves. They made underwear out of these fig leaves, fruit of the loom. She falls for the allure of sin. In verse 6, she eats it because she saw that the tree was one good for food. It was practical. You've got to eat. Who do you think you are? You can't get far unless you eat. It's practical. You've got to do it. It's the delight to the eyes. It's pleasing. It looks good. It looks fun. It's desire to make one wise. It's promising. Oh, if I do this, then I'll be happy. And notice that this sin appealed to her physically. It appealed to her emotionally. It appealed to her spiritually. Same to us as well. Sin appears to be very practical, very pleasing, very promising. See, she doesn't eat this fruit because it's nasty. She doesn't eat this fruit because it's ugly. It's not black licorice. Whatever, eat black licorice. It's a sign of the fall. Black licorice exists. She eats the fruit because it's delicious and it's beautiful. And so the question is, why do you and I sin? And the reason why you and I sin is because we're deceived about the word of God. We're deceived about the goodness of God. And we're deceived about the consequences of sin. See, the serpent said that they wouldn't die, that they could do whatever they wanted to do without any fear of punishment. The same is true in our world today. Our world says love is love, sex is sex, do what you want. Don't worry about the consequences. You do you. Don't worry. Be happy. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they're either a prude, a bigot, or an idiot. It's still a lie. And unfortunately, it's accepted as truth. And all throughout our culture and all throughout our world is this thing that sounds like truth, but it's a lie. Selling us a bill of goods that are not healthy. Have you ever seen Disney's The Little Mermaid? If you're not familiar with the story, all two of you. About a girl named Ariel who lived under the sea. But she doesn't want to live under the sea. She wants to be a part of their world on dry land. And so she falls in love with a prince and she tells her daddy uh, that she's in love uh, with a prince on dry land. And the daddy says, No, you are a princess. You are a mermaid. You live under the sea. You don't live on dry land. I don't want you to go. Don't do it. Well, she does what most teenage girls do. She doesn't listen to her dad. She uh, goes and sees a witch. And she goes and see the, sees the witch Ursula. And Ursula comes and she promises a future. She gives Ariel legs, but yet has to give her that in exchange for her voice. And so Ariel 
uh, goes onto dry land. She can't say a word, and so the prince falls in love with her. Can't you see her sitting there across the way? All right, anyway, they finally, in that moment, kiss. They defeat Ariel. They live happily ever after. Her dad and her family are excited, and there they are, and it's awesome. But Disney didn't actually write the story of The Little Mermaid. The original story of The Little Mermaid was written by a guy named Hans Christian Andersen. And his story is quite different. In his story, the prince doesn't fall in love with Ariel. He falls in love with someone else and marries her. Ariel is so distraught, so upset that Ursula comes to her, gives her a knife, and tells her that she's now supposed to kill the prince for rejecting her. Ariel refuses and instead jumps out of a window and kills herself. You see why Disney changed the story. <laughs> Flounder wouldn't like that. But what you'll notice is that Disney takes the story and makes it a parable that says this. If you just follow your dreams enough, you know what's best for you. If you do what you most want to do, you will be happy, and everyone will see how happy you are, and they'll be happy for you. Zippity-doo-dar, zippity-day. But the real story had a, another parable. And this is what I try to teach my kids, and this is the story of the Little Mermaid. Here's the real story. The parable is teaching this. Listen to your dad. Amen? Daddy knows what's best for you. See, our world paints the Disney story. You do you. You know what's best. God's word says, no, listen to your father. He knows what's best. Because the world's way leads to death. God's way leads to life. And the simple act between Adam and Eve in this garden had an eternal consequence. What they thought smelled like heaven tasted like hell. See, Satan promises that sin will make you feel good, that it will make you look good, that it will make you be better, but it takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you far more than you want to pay. And that's the fall of humanity. In Adam's fall, we sin all. But not only do we see the fall of humanity in these verses, but I want you to see the fracturing of relationships. Verse 7, the Bible says that as soon as they ate of that fruit, their eyes were opened. They got what they wanted, and that's the tragedy of sin. The tragedy of sin is that you may get what you want, but you do not get what you need. They got food. Their eyes were opened. But what... They got in sin was not what they thought they were getting from the serpent. They went from being naked and not ashamed to being naked and afraid. They're now overwhelmed with the flood of guilt and shame. They now immediately try to cover up themselves and hide their nakedness. For the first time, they saw each other exposed. How many of you have ever had a dream where you couldn't find your clothes, couldn't get your clothes on, and there's this constant panic in your dream because you're trying to cover yourself. Here they're trying to cover themselves, to fix themselves. They sew fig leaves together. They're trying whatever they can to hide. Matter of fact, in verse number eight, the Bible says that it, it was during this time that they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the midst of the garden. 
In other times, they would run to him, but now in this time, they hide from him. And in doing so, they do one of the dumbest things in the Bible. Adam and Eve hide behind trees. Let me just tell you something right now. Sin makes you stupid. Adam and Eve actually thought this would work. I can just hear Adam saying to Eve, he'll never find us in the trees. Yes, he spoke everything into existence. But if we hide in the trees, Eve, he won't see us. Let's go to the trees. It's kind of like, have you ever played hide and seek with a five-year-old? And you know they're in the closet. And you come up to the closet and you say, are you hiding in the closet? And they say, no. See, sin always makes us try to hide ourselves. And this is what I've been teaching my kids and what I've I've learned myself is that if you have to hide it, it's probably not right. See, guilt doesn't drive them towards God. Guilt drives them away from God towards self-promotion, self-salvation. They're now on a run from God. They're now enemies of God. Satan never told them they would feel this way. He never told them about the guilt or the shame So I've told you before, guilt is feeling bad for what you've done. Shame is feeling bad for who you are. They're now alienated from God and separated from each other. Sin has now cost them paradise. There's something missing. My favorite atheist, Jean-Paul Sartre, and the reason he's my favorite is he's actually an honest atheist. Here's what he says. He says, inside every human heart, whether they believe in God or not, is a voice that whispers, not acceptable. Because of this one act, there's a God-sized hole. All of humanity is born with this God-sized hole. You were born with a God-sized hole in your heart that only can be filled by God. And so because they're exposed, because their hole is open and exposed and they see their their insufficiency and their unacceptability, they now are on a run. They're hiding. And so that in verse number nine, God says to the man, where are you? God knew where they were. It didn't work. Hiding in the trees didn't work. (laughs) He, He didn't. Asked him where they were so that he could know. He asked him, asked him where they were so that they would know where they were. They're exposed. God asked him again. You, you'll read in verse 9. He says, where are you? Verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, Adam says, and I was afraid. Sin always makes us fearful because I was naked. I was exposed and I hid myself. God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat again? It's not that God didn't know this. He wants them to know this. And so Adam in verse number 12, in a a great moment of chivalry, says to God, the woman whom you gave me to be with me She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. In other words, God, the reason I did what I did is because of the woman you gave me. In other words, God, it is your fault, and it is her fault. It is your fault because you took a rib that I'm still missing 
from my side and you made her for me. And then she was talking to a snake, was duped by the devil, ate the fruit and then gave it to me. And what you notice here is Adam blame shifts. It wasn't me. I was having a difficult time. I was under a lot of stress. If you were in my situation, you would have done the same thing. I didn't want to make my wife upset. And what you notice here is Adam's exposed. He's exposed. I want you to go back to this thought. He's exposed. He's open. A God-sized hole is in his heart. And now his insecurity before God causes him to shift blame to others and to try to cover up himself through fig leaf religion. See, all of our problems with God stem, or all of our problems with others stem with our, from our broken relationship with God. Insecurity breeds hostility. Insecurity breeds jealousy and envy. And it's as if he's saying to God, God, if, if anyone deserves to die, it's this woman you gave me. Not I, but her. And the conflict between husband and wife rages to this day. You read the, furthering, the further fracturing of the relationship between God and man and God and woman and woman and man and man and woman in the world. You'll see verses 16 and following that childbearing is painful. Those of you who have given birth to children, women, um, it's painful. Been told it's painful. Men, could you imagine giving birth to a bowling ball? It's hard to work outside. There's conflict that's ongoing between husband and wife. There's frustration. Some of you lost your religion coming to church this morning and conflict with your husband or your wife. The world now rages against us with disease and disintegration, disaster and decay. Everything is cursed. Tim Keller says that the human beings are so integral to the fabric of things that when human beings turn from God, the entire warp and woof of the world unraveled. Things now fall apart. In verse 19, he says that by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. You'll return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to the dust you will return. The, the songwriters, Kansas, had it right when they said that we're just dust in the wind. Death is a reality. Man and woman are kicked out of paradise, no longer able to come back. They're sentenced to die. How did Adam and Eve die? Well, they died immediately in their spirit, progressively in their soul, and ultimately in their body. 50 million people die every year. 5,707 die every hour. 95 people die every minute. Just as you took that breath, four people around the world died. It's a great Theological lyricist Shai Lin says, we're cursed from our birth, sinning from the beginning, from the womb to the tomb, depraved to the grave, astray every day, every breath brings death. We're rebels like the devil, scheming like demons, prideful with our idols, disgusting with our lusting, twisted and sin-sick, selfish and helpless, and Adam all die, and Adam all die. Wow. And the Bible could have ended right there had it not been for the faithfulness of God. The Bible could have easily ended in Genesis 3. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her Jesus Storybook Bible written for children, in this moment in the story, the Bible story, she writes that in every other story, this would have been the end. 
but not in this story. Well, what does God do after humanity rebels against him? Verse number eight, the first thing he does is he pursues the guilty. God went on a search and rescue mission because he loved Adam and Eve. He knew where they were and he came to where they were. He went after them. They did not go after him. They ran from him. He ran to them. The story of the Bible is how God pursues sinners. God pursued Abraham, the idolater, Jacob, the deceiver, Moses, the murderer, Elijah, the powder, Jonah, the hater, Peter, the talker, Matthew, the traitor, Paul, the persecutor, and you and I, the sinner. We did not pursue him. He pursued us. We did not choose him. He chose us. And if you are here this morning when you could have been at the beach or in the bed or at Disney World, yet God in his mercy chose to have you here today so that he could pursue you by his grace. God pursues the guilty. Secondly, God gives promises to the fearful. God could have doomed Adam and Eve to hell forever with no hope, just as he did Satan and the demons, and yet he doesn't. In verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Satan, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God does not pronounce doom, he predicts victory. God promises after the fall, not before the fall, that the Messiah would come and he would be wounded by Satan, but he would ultimately crush Satan's head wide open. This is the longing of the Bible, that the Messiah would come, the ultimate fulfillment of the hopes and dreams for all the years that the prophets prophesied that every sacrifice pointed to, that they would come one who would destroy the work of the devil, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the true and better Adam. He succeeded where Adam failed. He's the woman's offspring. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from the tree, and they died. Jesus obeys God, climbs upon a tree, and willingly dies to bring life. Jesus climbs on the tree to take the curse that we deserve so that we can be released from it forever. See, God pursues the guilty. He promises a better future for the fearful. And then the last thing we see that God does in this text is he covers the shameful. In verse 21, the Bible says that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. One of the things that we learn, as we've already said, is that actions have consequences, but even greater sin has consequences. Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Because of your sin, something or someone has to die. In this moment, after the fig leaves were not enough, God made a covering for Adam's shame, and he did so by killing an innocent animal. In this, we see the first pattern that the innocent pays for the guilty. It's a pattern that is seen throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system where an innocent animal would be sacrificed to cover the sins of the people. All throughout the Bible where we see a lamb or a goat or a bull or a dove, it points us to the one who is truly innocent, who died for us, who covers our shame. You know, the natural question arises into your heart is this, is this really true? Does God really love me enough to fix my broken life? Is there really any hope? Because Satan right now is trying to whisper into your ear, it's not true. This is mythology. This isn't real. 
God's word is saying it's true. Do you remember Humpty Dumpty? Poor old Humpty Dumpty, he sat on a wall. When Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put poor old Humpty Dumpty back together again. But let me just tell you something this morning. You're not Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty fell on accident. You and I fell on purpose. We're broken. And Humpty Dumpty, no one could put him back together again. Not the king, not his men, not his horse. But for us, Jesus Christ, the king of kings, is the only one who can put us back together again. See, Genesis 3 is my story. Genesis 3 is your story. We're all sinners who have fallen short of God's glory and his standards, and we're all ruined by sin, and yet God pursues us with grace, covers us from our shame, and promises us a better future. And we only get it when we stop blaming others, stop blaming our circumstances, stop blaming our parents, stop blaming our spouses, stop blaming our friends, and just own our sins. We must say there's nobody at fault but me. And so this morning, my prayer is, is that you would admit your sin and that you would run to your Savior. There's an old hymn that says this, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me as his own. In the arms of my dear Savior, there is life forevermore. You may have come here broken. You may feel like you're Humpty Dumpty. But I'm telling you today, Jesus can make you whole. Because he can fill that hole in your heart. And so right now, those of you in this room, that your heart is beating. and There's a weight of the world on your shoulders. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Satan is saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't believe that. It's not true. God isn't good. He doesn't love you. You're too bad. You can't do it. You don't need to do it. You're a good person. And Jesus is saying, there's none too bad I cannot save. And there's none too good that I don't need to save. Jesus says, come. And if you're here today, he can fix your heart. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're here this morning in this room or watching online and you say, Pastor, I know I'm not right with God. There's a hole in my heart. And while you've been talking, I see things different. Maybe today, my friend, that's you and you need to give your life to Jesus. So I'm gonna lead us in a prayer. And if you have put your faith in yourself, Stop. And today, put your faith and trust in Jesus. And so if you'll just be honest with God and you want to be saved today, would you pray a prayer like this? Lord Jesus, I'm broken. I'm empty. I'm a sinner. And God, I need you. And I believe that you died on the cross, Jesus. And I believe that you rose from the dead. And I believe that you're the only one who can fill the hole of my heart. So today, Lord Jesus, will you forgive me of my sins? Will you save me? And will you help me today to pursue your will above my own? 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. If you're in the room this morning and you just prayed to trust Christ, no one is looking around. I just want to see you so I can pray for you. So if you just trusted Christ as your Savior for the first time, would you raise your hand as high as possible? It's as high as high as can be. I see you. I see you. I see you. You put your hand down. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for those who trusted in you. We love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.